I'm Robert. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, this is first two-service Sunday after we've been one service in the summer. And uh, so we kind of build up as we go, and so this week we're kind of running through the two-service schedule before people are really back, partly because we want to work out the kinks of all the things that have to happen to make this happen. Uh, next week, you'll see some Amherst College freshmen come in because of orientation, and the following week, then the, the rest of the, the students, freshmen and otherwise, uh, will, will start to come in, among lots of other people as well. Our community kind of just comes alive uh, in September with lots of new people that move into the area. So hopefully you're grabbing a Bible, opening it up to Psalm 23, that'll be helpful to you. There'll also be some, uh, some slides with most of the text of Scripture on it. I want to start this morning by having you consider a question of who is God? Who is God? I think for, for some people, if you think about it like a little decision tree, uh, some people say, well, there, there is no God. Well, that, that kind of answers that question, right? We don't even need to think about it. We don't need to think about who is God. Uh, but honestly, a high percentage, and statistics, statistics bear this out, most people believe there is a God. They, they kind of look around at the world, the complexity of it, morality, different reasons. They would say, eh, actually, I think there is a higher being. And then the next question to follow that would be, well, can this God be known? And so if you're saying, well, no, there is a God, but He can't be known, then that's kind of the end of that, right? But if you think He can be known... That's where the religions start to kick in, right? I mean, every religion is, is saying, yes, there is a God. Yes, this God can be known. And they're offering up some means of knowing this God. And so that's usually maybe a mystical experience kind of a thing or maybe a sacred text that they offer, right? I'm up here holding this Bible. Why? Because it's our sacred text. We believe God reveals Himself through this sacred text, this scripture. And so I'm assuming because you're here today, you probably think there is a God and He can be known. And so we're going to look into this sacred text and look at a very, very old text uh, from the Psalms. And in this Psalm, we have uh, an overarching theme uh, or a motif that describes who God is that pops up everywhere. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, and this is the idea that God is a shepherd. He's a shepherd. This opening line of Psalm 23, written by King David, who was a shepherd, so he knows what he's talking about, and he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, what's a shepherd? Well, a shepherd takes care of sheep. I think we all know that. Um, it's a very humble occupation. It is a hard occupation. It's probably not something that... You know, people, kid, little kids in the ancient world are like, Mommy, I want to grow up and be a shepherd. Like, they don't want to be a shepherd. Uh, it's, it's difficult. It's in the outside, uh, the elements. Uh, you're dealing with animals. It's dirty, hard work. Uh, you could even lose your life because there's some serious predators out there. And interestingly enough, though it be a humble occupation, though it be a very difficult occupation, uh, it has a lot of parallels with the person and the character of God, right? That God is a, a shepherd. And David says in a very personal way, he says the Lord is my shepherd. Not just a shepherd. He is my 
shepherd. And that makes sense because, I mean, shepherds didn't just like wander out in a random pasture and like, okay, looking for some random sheep and I'll shepherd those sheep for the day and then I'll clock out and go back home and then come back and look for some more random sheep. They had a flock. They had a particular group of sheep that they were dedicated to tending. You hear this in the words of Jesus, Luke 15, when he uses this uh, motif. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. So Jesus is describing God, the shepherd, having a uh, hundred sheep and doing the head count and realizing, oh, 99, there's one missing, and then going after the one. That the God is dedicated to a flock. He has particular sheep. And David says, the Lord is my shepherd, right? And so by saying that, he's saying, I belong to God, right? That, that in some sense, he's given up his independence as an independent sheep, his autonomy as, as a sheep. And but that kind of begs the question, was, is that a good thing, you know, to, to give my independence over to uh, this shepherd, this, this God? And uh, I think most of us, especially modern people, uh, we don't like that idea of, of being owned by someone or, or being, uh, losing our independence or autonomy. Like, like just one of the just sort of cardinal rules of the modern age is I am autonomous. I have independence. But what if I'm a sheep? Is that a good ethic to follow if I'm a sheep? I mean, just think about it. If you're counseling a sheep, a sheep comes to you, and the sheep says, I'm thinking of going it alone. I mean, what's the worst that could happen, right? Well, sheep are really vulnerable, and they don't know it, which makes them more vulnerable. I mean, I'll say that again, right? Sheep are very vulnerable, and they don't know it, which makes them even more vulnerable, they tend to wander off. They don't have the, the intelligence to move on to another pasture when they run out of grass. They'll just stand in an a, a eaten-out pasture uh, and die. They eat stuff that makes them sick. They, don't, they can't discern what's good food, bad food. They're very fearful. They'll even trample each other to death in a rainstorm because they get so afraid. Uh, they cannot fight back against their predators, bears. Wolves, have you ever seen a sheep go after a predator? I mean, they don't do it. They can't do it. They're incredibly vulnerable, and they don't know it. So you're counseling the sheep, and the sheep's like, I think I'm going it alone. What are you going to say to them? No! No, sheep, that's a horrible idea. The worst that can happen, well, I don't even want to go into that. Don't go it alone. You need a shepherd. Well, this is us living apart from God. This is us living apart from God. We're vulnerable, and we don't even know it, which makes us even more vulnerable. But we're like, I got this. I can handle this, right? But you're a sheep, and sheep need a shepherd. So, sheep need a shepherd. David is writing this, Psalm 23. He's saying that his shepherd is God. Now, what kind of shepherd is God? Right? Because we can answer the question, there is a God, He can be known, but is this good news or bad news, right? 
Is he a good shepherd? Is he a bad shepherd? Is he a scary shepherd? Like what, what kind of shepherd is he? Which is a big part of what this psalm's all about, is who is this shepherd God? So I'll read this again. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. So what we, what we find in this passage, and we're going to spend today in these three verses, then next week we'll continue the rest of the, of the psalm. But in this little section here, this personal shepherd God does two things. He feeds and He leads. He feeds and He leads. So this personal shepherd God, He feeds and He leads. So if you zone out, just know that's where I'm going. You can zone back in. You go, okay, feed, lead. I know, I know what He's talking about. So he feeds. Now, um, I shall not want. That's some good feeding right there. Right, David? David saying, I shall not want. This is how well my shepherd is feeding me. And so what is he, what is he feeding them, these sheep? Well, they're getting food, the green pastures. They're getting water. They're getting the still waters. And they're getting rest. They're lying down by the still waters. So they're getting grass, they're getting water, they're getting rest. That's what sheep need. That's what they need. They need to eat, they need to drink, and they need not to do a lot of things so that they can grow wool, you know? It's not too complicated what sheep need to do. Now, do they get everything that they want? No, that's not what he's saying. Like, because sheep want to eat poisonous plants, and that's not good for them. So the shepherd doesn't let them eat poisonous plants, right? So it's not any kind of whimsical desire I have, God meets that desire, and therefore I can say I shall not want. What David is saying is that God has given him everything that he needs. That God, my shepherd, has given me everything that I need. Um, David is, is, is communicating his belief that God is all-powerful, right? So He has the power to feed and lead, and He's all good, right? So the way that He feeds and leads is good, and He's all-wise. So whatever He's orchestrating and the, the, the way that He's leading His sheep, it's the right thing. It's the best thing. And David is saying, I have 100% belief, I have 100% certainty that this is the shepherd that is my shepherd. And because of that, I can say, I shall not want. Now, this is not most of us in the room. Most of us in the room, we want. We want a lot of stuff, right? I mean, we wake up in the morning, and it's like some spiritual heartburn coming up. I want this. I want that. Right? I, maybe I want some financial things. Right? Or maybe I want some healing in my body that I haven't gotten. Maybe I want some relationships that I don't have. Maybe I want a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe I want to get married. Maybe I want more friends. Maybe, and it's just, again, like a spiritual heartburn that comes up. I want this. Uh, it might be more success at work. It might be more success at school. It, it may be... Uh, dreams of retirement or leisure. You're like, I want that. And we're not saying with David, I shall not want. 
Now, what I'm not saying is that you shouldn't bring those things to God. You should. When you see those wants bubbling up, you should talk to God about those things. You should bring those before Him. He is a good shepherd. And some of those wants are valid wants, and He'll see those things. And as the sovereign, good, wise God, He will give those things to you. Other things, He's like, nope, that's a poisonous plant. And you're like, no, it looks fine. It looks good for me. I don't think that's a problem. God's like, I'm the shepherd. You're the sheep. Just trust me. I'm going to deprive you of that thing that you think you, quote, want. Um, Paul describes something similar, a, a state that he's in as a mature Christian, Philippians 4, 11 and 12. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I shall not want, right? I know, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You see what he's doing there. He, he's saying, in times where I perceive that I, is, that I am in plenty, I'm content. In times when I perceive that I'm in want, I'm content. And you know that you can want and not be content in plenty or when you're in deprivation. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that how, how, how messed up we are? Is even when we're in a time of abundance, we still want. We're like, no, God, it's not enough. It can almost like drive us to an even greater place of want because the thing that we thought was going to actually give us the, the satisfaction is not giving us the satisfaction. And how does Paul do this? He says, I've, I've learned to do this. I've learned to be content in plenty or in a time of deprivation? Well, the very next verse, he says, verse Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, we love to quote that verse when we're kneeling in the, in the end zone for the touchdown. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not the context, okay? The context is Paul saying, I've reached a place of Christian maturity where if I'm perceiving myself in deprivation or in abundance, I maintain a posture of satisfaction in God. And I don't want. Woo! Long for that. I long for that, okay? I'm preaching this sermon to me just as much as I'm preaching it to you. Long for that, to say with David and to say with, with Paul, I shall not want. And again, I'm not saying that you should take all your wants and your desires and shove them down and go, yes, I will try harder not to want. Bring those to the surface. Bring those before the Lord. Confess those things. Say, I do want. God, I do want. I want these things. And I am treating these things like non-negotiables with you, God. And I'm angry with you, God. I'm frustrated with you. I I'm bitter at you. I'm distant from you. Because you're not giving me what I think I should be getting in the grass and water rest department. And I'm not trusting you as my shepherd. How do I know how to pray like that? Because I pray like that. Bringing those needs before the Lord and trusting in Him being the good shepherd. Because what happens if you can trust in His feeding and, of, of you, you can rest. 
Those things are tied together. He, he, he puts those in this psalm together for a reason. God's sheep are given rest because they're trusting in the shepherd's ability to feed them. So part, part of the context of this Psalm 23 is like a, a real life thing that the people that originally heard this would understand. So in Palestine, in, as the months are cooler, you can feed your sheep at lower elevations. Uh, yeah, lower elevations. But as it warms up, the grass begins to die, it begins to get burnt, and there's nothing for the sheep. And then the shepherd has to take them to a higher elevation, and they have to go through a valley of the shadow to get to that higher elevation. And it's hard on the sheep, and it doesn't make sense because the sheep are like, there's no grass around here. This is just rocks. I don't know what you're doing, shepherd. And the shepherd's like, don't worry about it. I got it. I'm taking you to the next plateau, and I'm going to feed you green grass, and you're going to get water up there. Right? And so they're having to trust that, that God is able to feed them. And if he's able to feed them, then they can rest. They can rest. When we don't rest, we're saying to God, what you're providing me ain't cutting it. This grass and water right here, this ain't doing it. So I'm not resting. I got to take matters in my own hands. It's like sheep having little meetings in the flock. And they're like, okay, that shepherd is not doing a good enough job. We are going to go take the flock to the next place. right? Instead of, no, shepherd knows what he's doing. We're going, to, we're going to trust the shepherd. And because we can trust the shepherd, we'll rest. Which seemingly makes you even more vulnerable. Think about that. You're trusting the feeding of the shepherd. You're not sure how the, the next round's going to go, but you trust and you rest. It seems like you're even more vulnerable. And you are in some ways, but, but you're placing yourself under the care of your shepherd. Uh, we, we just came back from a five-month sabbatical, which is a tremendous act of faith for us. Uh, you know, it seemed like a great idea, like six months out. We're like, wow, we're going to get to rest and read and get, you know, spend time together, and it's going to be amazing, and you get closer, 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 and then you're like, what are we doing? We're leaving the church for five months. What's going to happen? What happened is everything went great. The church grew. The gospel was preached. Disciples were made. God really is shepherding his church, and he can do it without me or with me. He was superintending that whole time, even though I was at rest. It was a great lesson for me to see the hand of God, the shepherd of his church. When I talked to young, younger pastors, and I, you know, we were at a seminary for that time, and I'd bump into different people and I talked to young pastors, and they'd say, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm on a sabbatical. And they said, well, how long? And I'd say, five months. And they're like, oh, I can never do that. I can never do that. I don't think I could ever leave the church for that long. And I was like, well, yeah, okay, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Like, what am I doing? And then I'd talk to older pastors, and they'd say, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm taking a sabbatical for five months. And they, they said, I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have done that. Right? And, and, and it... it it's, it's this trust in the good shepherd. He can be trusted to feed his sheep. Now, there is a pattern in Genesis, right? As we open up the, the very beginning uh, pages of our Bibles, we read this 
pattern of work six days and rest one because sheep don't have to get jobs, okay? It's an analogy breaks down a little bit, but you sheep, you got to get jobs and you got to work, right, six days, but you rest one. You rest one. And you're doing that as a way of trusting in your shepherd who's feeding you. And when we don't rest, you're saying, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. You're not feeding me the way you should, and I'm going to take matters in my own hands. Now, He also leads us. So, not only does He feed us, but He leads us. Uh, You see this in both verse 2 and 3. He says, He makes, makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So, partly what he, he is doing is leading us to places of rest, of refreshment, of feeding us. But then verse 3 says, He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. So, He is not just leading us to a place of green pastures and water. He's leading us to a couple other things as well. He's leading His sheep to restoration and to righteousness. And this is where we're definitely talking about humans and not sheep, right? Shepherds that lead sheep are not restoring their souls. Sheep don't have souls. Sorry. Hate hate to break the news to you. Um, He's talking about human beings here, that they need a restoration of their soul, and they need to be led in paths of righteousness. Um, The soul is the immaterial part of you. You're not just a body of cells walking around. Your body of cells walking around is integrated with your spiritual soul. That's what makes you alive. Like like the reason you're sitting here and you're breathing air and looking at me and listening is because your soul and your body is integrated together. And when we die, those things are disintegrated, soul and body. So you go to a funeral and you see that physical body and you're like, that's the same human body and it's got the same cells. Why isn't it not alive? It's because the soul has disintegrated from that human body. And so this psalm is talking about the the restoration of your immaterial self, your soul. And when we restore something, uh, we usually are thinking about it having been created in a beautiful way, but then... um, gone through some sort of disrepair, and then restored. And, and so, th- this is our soul, right? That in the created order, God creates creation and, and human beings, and they are in a, a beautiful state. But because of sin and its effects, it mars not only our bodies, but it mars our soul. Our souls become in disrepair, and our souls need to be restored. Uh, We stayed in a couple of Airbnbs while we were in uh, Wake Forest dropping off uh, our daughter for college. And uh, the first one was a brand new house and everything in it was brand new. It's like they went to Target and Ikea and they just got everything new, furniture, pictures on the wall, and just made this new house. And and it was was great. It was awesome. We we enjoyed it. Uh, We stayed there a few days. But then we had to relocate into another Airbnb, which was like downtown in the historic district of Wake Forest, North Carolina. And so we're in this super old building that's been completely restored. It was absolutely beautiful. And the, the, the old floors that were a couple hundred years old, you know, had, had been refinished. 
and were just beautiful, and, and the, the, the brick walls were, were all restored, and, and they, they exposed beautiful red brick. And the windows had, had all been replaced, but they hadn't been replaced with like some, you know, aluminum. They, they, they had wooden windows. They had every detail was beautifully restored, I would say, to be even better than probably it's ever been before. And usually when I'm there, um, if I'm going to go do some sermon work or whatever, I'll go to a little coffee shop that's across the street. And, and I was like, this place is so awesome. I'm making my own coffee. I'm just going to hang out in this because it was just so glorious. It was just so beautiful. This is, this is what God's up to in your soul. That's what he's up to in your soul. Your soul is marred by sin. Your soul is sick from sin. My soul is sick from sin. And God is, is seeking to restore it. He's seeking to give you some psychiatry. The word psychiatry literally means the cure of souls. And, and God is at, he's in the business of curing souls, restoring souls souls. Uh, you can, throughout the Psalms, you can read about both the disrepair of, of souls and the restoration of souls. Here's some examples in the Psalms of the disrepair of the soul. So here's from Psalm 10, rebellion in the soul. It says, for the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. So it's describing the, the, the rebellion of a human soul that's in disrepair. And it's, it's saying, my desires are what should rule my life, right? And their soul is, they're boasting of the desires of their soul. There's a lot in Psalms about the emotional pain, the, the pain of the soul. Um, Psalm 6, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. So there he's talking about your physical body. But then verse 3, my soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? You just hear the angst in this person's heart calling out, saying, I'm having physical manifestations of the stress and the pressure that I'm going through. But not only my body, my soul is under great duress. Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. Uh, he's talking to his soul. You know you could do that? You could talk to your soul. And he's saying, soul, what is your problem? Why are you so depressed? Why are you so downcast? Right? The soul is, is, is in disrepair. There's a lot in, in Psalms about the spiritual separation of the soul from God. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God. Usually when we quote that verse, the deer, we, we're longing for God as the deer pants. It's like a, it's a super positive thing, and we put it on pillows, and it's just awesome. But, but look at the context, right? He's saying, I'm so parched here. I, I'm so separated from you, God. Where are you? I need you. I'm hungry for you. My soul itself 
is parched. We, we need God's psychiatry. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not discounting conventional psychiatry when I say that, but, but to understand God's in the business of curing souls. He's in the business of healing souls. Does that mean physical life doesn't matter? Not at all. God cares about the physical life. We were, were taught by Jesus to pray for daily bread. Like, he want, he, he, He's concerned about our, our, our physical life. But He's more concerned about our spiritual life. He's more concerned about our spiritual life. This, this is what we're, we're doing when we fast. We're saying, I'm more concerned with my, my spiritual life than my physical life. I'm saying, I'm going to forego this food that I really want and I need in order to say to my soul, soul, you don't need food more than you need God. Right? The spiritual life takes uh, a priority over the, the physical. And most of us, we, we don't believe this. We just don't believe it. Because if we did believe it, we would be quicker to say with David, I shall not want. If we really believed what, what I'm saying here, that the restoration of our souls is primary. Right? Not that physical life doesn't matter, but, but, but it is, but spiritual life is primary over physical life, then we could say with David, I shall not want. I shall not want. I think this is something along the lines of what James is writing about when he says in James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You're like, what? What are you talking about? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and and complete, lacking nothing. This is what James is saying. He's saying, I'm excited with with sort of a godly joy about these things that are coming into my life that are difficulties because I know I'm going to be formed by them spiritually. I'm going to be made more mature, more complete. This is what David's getting at. This is what Paul's getting at. This is what James is getting at. They all three, I think, could say, I shall not want because they believe that God is in the business of, of restoring their soul. Now, again, I'm not saying try to fake it. When those wants are bubbling up, bring those to the Lord. He will help you sort them out. And some of them, you're going to have to throw in the trash heap, right? And just say, I wanted that, and it's a poisonous plant, and I have no business eating it. But this want, this other want, Lord, I think you're in this. Maybe it's a timing thing. It's a wisdom thing. You're, you're good and in, in control, and, and you will absolutely give this kind of thing to your sheep, but not right now. But I trust you, God. You're, you're leading me to restoration of my soul. And that's what he's doing when, when there's times of deprivation. It's not because he likes to see you squirm or struggle. Or just, he, he's restoring your soul. He's using that context to do what James just described, making you perfect. He's making you mature through that experience of being led. And, and the Psalms are full of Psalms of restoration as well, right? Psalm 56, verse 13, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Psalm 63, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. You see what he's doing there? He knows that 
we get super satisfied with rich food, right? We, we sit down to a banquet, and it is so satisfying. And he's saying, yeah, 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 yeah. That, I know, in a physical life, that, that's, that's a good thing, and that's from God. But I'm telling you, in the spiritual life, you can sit down to that kind of satisfaction, right? That kind of restoration in your soul. Long for that. Let's long for that, right? Um, Psalm 71, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. Love that, right? He's saying my lips are singing, praising, but so is my soul. My body, my soul, they're integrated. We're, we're both praising. That's what's supposed to be happening here when we're worshiping. Is that you're not just giving lip service to that praise, but that praise is coming from your soul, but you're using your lips to express what's going on in the immaterial self. But know that the restorations that we read about in Psalms are oftentimes in the context of suffering and struggle, of perceived want. Here's, here's one example, Psalm 94. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. And so it's in the context of these experiences of what is perceived want, perceived deprivation, that God meets us in that. And, and you know, just like he says, your consolations cheer my soul. My, my heart has so many cares. But yet when I turn to my shepherd, his consolations cheer my soul. Has the circumstances changed? As far as we know, no, they haven't changed at all. But, but the posture of this writer's heart is, has changed. And he is saying that I shall not want. So understand that the way that the personal shepherd feeds us and leads us is, is, is going to a, somewhere. And it's not just grass and water, okay? It's restoration, of your soul. It's some psychiatry. It's some cure. It's some healing of our soul. Larry Crabb, who is a a writer and a a Christian counselor, he says, we rid ourselves of joy when we seek to rid ourselves of pain. We rid ourselves of joy, true joy, when we seek to rid ourselves of pain. I think what he means by that was when when the shepherd's leading us in a way that's going to experience some pain, and we say, Mm-mm. I am not following you there. I'm going to escape. I'm going to medicate. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to not experience that, that pain. But we're missing out on the soul restoration that's on the other side of that difficult thing that God may be asking of us. Right? And then we don't get joy. We get the temporary sort of happiness from whatever the, the thing we're doing that's medicating the pain instead of the deep-seated joy that comes from soul restoration. Now, not only is He leading us to soul restoration, He's leading us to paths of righteousness. Did you catch that? Paths of righteousness. So what happens is, is when the immaterial self is being restored, it then expresses itself outwardly in righteousness, in the things we think, in the things we say, in the things we do, the things we don't think, the things we don't say, the things we don't do. It's expressed outwardly, right? Our body, our soul are integrated. Soul gets restored. Body starts to do what body's supposed to be doing. Brain starts thinking what brain's supposed to be thinking. 
right? And so there's not just the lead to, of sort of a mystical restoration, which I think we're all into, right? We're like, oh, yeah, restoration. Oh, yeah, come rest, restore my soul. It's like I'm at a Christian spiritual spa. Just restore my... It is that, but it's, it's, if it's real and it's genuine, it's going to express itself in righteousness. Things we think, things we say, things we, we do. Um, it's similar to thinking about physical health. So let me, let, let, let's think about this. I'm talking to you and you're like, I got a fever, I got a cough, I got a rash. I'm thinking there's an invisible infection. We can't see it, but you've got it, right? I'm looking at those physical symptoms and I'm, uh, I'm thinking, you, you're probably sick. You need to go to the doctor, right? And then you start to get better. And you get energy and, and the fever goes away and you, you seem to have the symptoms of health. And then I'm, I'm, I can say, well, I'm, I can't see that infection, whether it's there or not, but I'm pretty sure it's not there because you're exhibiting these symptoms of health, right? And so spiritual life's similar. If your soul is genuinely restored, you're going to start expressing that health in righteousness. You're going to think like God. You're going to speak like God. You're going to, you're going to act righteously according to His, His ways. And if, if you're not, then you know that there's some soul care that needs tending. I mean, what I'm talking about here is discipleship. You might have thought Psalm 23 was just to read at funerals, right? But, but actually, it's talking about discipleship, where we're not just saying in discipleship, here's a list of do's and don'ts. Now, we're going to hold each other accountable, and we're going to grit our teeth, and we're going to try really hard, and when we fail, we're going to shame each other, and then we're going to try again. Break. Let's do it. No, that is not discipleship. Discipleship is this restoration of your soul, where your relationship with God is, is being tended by God in the community of that little discipleship group. We'll be starting a bunch of them up in a couple weeks. And as that is happening, in that health, you are then, yes, living righteously. You are thinking thoughts that are righteous. You're saying things that are righteous. You're living in ways that are righteous. And you're doing that under the care of your shepherd. Uh, Dallas Willard, who is, um, uh, he's, he's passed away now, but he was a philosopher at USC. He's written several books, but he said this, the person who does the right thing without thinking about it, this is what we want to become. This is what we want to become. I think it's partly what Paul's saying. He's saying, I, I've been in plenty, I've been in want. And in those settings, I'm content. <laughs> You're like, how did you do that? Because he's been transformed from the soul out. Right? And so you're doing and being that which God has made to be true in, in your heart, in your soul. So how does God accomplish all this, right? Right now, it's been kind of like out here, like, okay, God's my psychiatrist. He's going to heal me, restore me. Uh, how, do, how does He do that? Well, souls need much more than grass and water, right? Grass and water is not going to cut it. Uh, we, we can see this, uh, the, the, the meeting of this need of the, of the sick soul. In, I'm going to just give you one little verse from John chapter 10. This is a stunning verse. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. Mm. 
That's like an explosion coming off the page there, right? Those original hearers had, had recited Psalm 23 from little on up, and Jesus is saying, that's me. That's me. That person that, that David is saying, the Lord is my shepherd, that's me. God himself shows up in the flesh. That, that's why as Christians we can say, God can be known Right? We think about that little decision tree. Is there a God? Yes. Can He be known? Yes. How can He be known? Jesus. Jesus. Not, not just a sacred text or some mystical experiences, although I think there's uh, absolute like mystical experience with God through faith in Christ. Absolutely. It's, it's not just like do's and don'ts. Is this sacred text important? Absolutely. It's the primary way that God reveals to us who Jesus is and how to relate to him. Absolutely. But the bottom line is he has revealed himself by becoming himself. He is the good shepherd. And why did he come? Well, he not only says he's the good shepherd, he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But Jesus knew that the soul sickness would not be cured unless he died for the sin that caused that sickness. So he didn't just come in the flesh to just be, to be here. He came to be a human so that he could die on the cross for our sin. So that he could bring the healing that our souls and our bodies need, that we can't muster. We can't come up with a, a cure for our souls and our bodies because the effects of sin have defeated us. And without Jesus intervening and dying on our behalf, we, we have no hope. That's what we were singing earlier. Like, you called me out of the grave. I was, I was dead in sin. And so Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. So for some of you, you've never come under the care of the good shepherd, Jesus. You've been going it alone. You've been saying, yeah, I know I'm a sheep, but I got this. I'm good. Well, if you're here this morning, it's probably not going all that great. <laughs> You've probably begun at least a little bit to realize, I'm vulnerable. I'm in need. My soul is in great need of restoration, and I can't fix it myself. And so I'm here to tell you, there is a good shepherd. He's inviting you into his fold this morning that you could trust in this gracious gift of salvation from sin and come under His care as your shepherd. If you've never done that this morning, I would encourage you to do that, to pray to Him even now and ask Him to bring you into His fold, to, to forgive you, to, to heal you, to bring you in to His fold. And, and if, if you're like, I'm interested, I'm not exactly sure what you're saying, Pastor Rob, but let's talk. Come down after the service. We can chat. I'll be in the back a little bit during the service. You can come chat. Maybe there's somebody who's a Christian here that you know. Start working that out. What does it mean for me to be uh, under the care of the Good Shepherd? Others of us who are in the flock, um, we need to be reminded of the sufficiency of what God has done for us in the gospel. That when we are wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting and getting so focused on the physical life, so much so that we're missing what God's trying to do 
in us to restore our souls and lead us in paths of righteousness. Because the reason He's doing that is, yes, it is good for us, but it is for His name's sake. Did you catch that? That this feeding and leading for purposes of restoration and righteousness give glory to God. And so we get the opportunity to, to, to bear His image, right? to reflect who He is. Man, this valley desperately needs that. And so as we allow Him to restore our soul and, and, and stop fighting Him, right? He's, he's leading us, and we're like, uh-uh, don't, don't take me there. I don't want to do that. He's the shepherd. We're the sheep. We need a reminder of that. And we need a reminder of that He has given us everything we need, everything we need in the gospel. This is what we were reminded of uh, as we come to this table. Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, He is there with His disciples, His sheep. He, he can see in them the ravaging of sin in their souls, in their bodies, in the way they're thinking, the way they're talking, the way they're acting. And it's just downward spiral. In those last days leading up to His death, it just gets worse and worse and worse. He's being betrayed. He, 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 they're, they're leaving Him. Uh, there, there's disloyalty, there, there's fighting, infighting, there's, they're fighting over who's going to be the, the right, you know, right hand and the left hand, and, and he sees them just swirling down into sin and its effects. And Jesus, the good shepherd, knows what they need. And so he feeds them, and he doesn't feed them grass and water. He takes bread on that night, he breaks it. He gives it to them saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He knows the only thing that is going to cure their souls is if he goes to the cross that very next day. That this gospel, this good news of what Christ has done, the good shepherd to lay down his life, this, this is what is going to satisfy them. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And so he lets them know that not only does his death cure the individual soul, but it creates a community of souls, right? The church, a covenant community. And so not, not only are, are we experiencing this cure of souls in our own life, but we're experiencing it in community as we are in a flock. We're His sheep. And the shepherd has done everything we need to be cared for. And He's done it to the point of even giving His life so that our souls could be cured of sin, sickness. So let's confess those wants. <laughs> of that waking up in the morning and instead of um, praising Him, instead of thanking Him, instead of being grateful for the all-sufficient shepherd, we're, we're like, I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I want this. And again, I'm not saying don't bring those before the Lord, but let's, let's ask the Lord to do a work in us as individuals, as a church, that we would rest in the all-sufficiency of this good gospel, this grace that he's paid a high price to give us. Let's pray. God, we, we do confess, Lord, 
It's hard for us to, to say with David, I shall not want. To say with Paul, I've learned to be content. Part of it is our cultural moment. We live in a moment of absolute runaway consumerism. But I believe, Lord, your grace is sufficient. So, Lord, would you come and cure our souls this morning? I thank you for what you've done to bring restoration for us, Lord, to forgive us of our sins, to reconcile us with you, that we don't have to be panting and panting and panting and separated from you, but instead drinking the cold, clear water and eating that good grass of your presence this morning, bought and paid for at the cross. So, Lord, would you restore our souls this morning? But not just for, for restoration's sake, Lord, because we also want to repent. We want to think and, and speak and act righteously, and we want to do that for your glory. So, God, come and shepherd us, tend us, Lord. Each of our hearts needs something different. So, please, come and tend as we take this bread and cup to be reminded of how you have fed us uh, with what we really, really need. Thank you for that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.